Blake. This is it. This is it. This is the last one. Yeah. Our last episode of this podcast. Wow. Forever. That's true. Can you believe it? 10 seasons, 1,000 episodes. I know. It feels so great to get it all out. <laughs> yeah. I had all those podcasts just kind of festering inside of me, <laughs> and I had to push them out into the world. Mm-hmm. That's what we needed. But what is this? This is like 45, that's something like good. that. Yeah. Sure. Um, I'll go with that. Something like that. Yeah. So that's good. That's a good run. I feel like we covered a lot of ground. We really did cover a lot of ground. Yeah. So uh, before we get into it, uh, for those who are now coming in at the very last episode, uh, I'll just tell you right now that I'm your um, psycho killer, Keskase host, Aiden Walker. And I'm your sad, hapless victim, Blake. <laughs> I'm happy that this theme has gone on. <laughs> <laughs> it always freaks me out, though, because like the second you say it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I have to think of something clever. And then I never do. It's always very disappointing. And there's the comedy, folks. <laughs> Sorry. So, yeah, we've covered a lot of ground here. We really have. Our first episode was on Blade Runner. Yeah. The original Blade Runner. That's fair. Well, I feel like what was the real order? It was like it, and then that was scrapped. And then was Blade Runner after? I feel like it was yeah. very out of order. Yeah, we, we, we goofed it up on those first attempts. We did an episode on it uh-huh. right after that came out. And then... We realized that we weren't recording using the soundboard and we accidentally <laughs> recorded using just the computer's internal mic and the episode sounded like trash. Uh, so we scrapped that and we also weren't happy with the things that we said. <laughs> so then we tried Blade Runner and we did that and we were pretty happy with that and I started editing it. And then we had a guest in to do an episode on Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. And that was a wreck because of a couple of reasons. One being we tried using a new microphone that was USB when the rest <laughs> of them weren't and that didn't work. And some other issues, so. Yeah. While looking back at those early episodes, I was such a wreck the entire time. I'm sure it shows in the um, I listened recorded to, samples. Yeah, I listened to some of those early ones recently, just kind of going back over it. And I was like, wow, we sound a lot more comfortable on mic now than we did then. I would think so. I feel a lot more comfortable now. That's I feel like good. back then I was always like, what am I going to say next? And I was just like, <laughs> let's just work on it into the mic. Yeah, it doesn't just matter. Kinda... <laughs> Yeah. For the audience Thank there. God. I think I've gotten like the number of times I say I'm in like down. I hope that's been one of my accomplishments oh, since certainly. the early episodes. Certainly. <laughs> I feel like I spend a lot less time editing the episodes now for sure. Thank God. So we watched Psycho we from did. 1960 directed by Alfred Hitchcock. My man. For today's episode. Blake's yeah. man. We had to go out with a bang. You got to pick one of the best. Yeah. We had to pick an absolute classic to go mm-hmm. out on. I feel like you've seen just about every single Hitchcock movie, haven't you? For the most part. I feel like I'm a lot less well-versed on his early stuff. I think like when he was still working mostly in Britain. But yeah, most of his stuff. I feel like I need to rewatch everything because I watched most of them when I was pretty young. So a lot of the writing that I've done about his stuff is very bad. So I feel like I have to go back and kind of like redo. <laughs> Are you doing a new review on Psycho now that you've I, just rewatched it? I did this weekend, like right after I watched oh, good. it. It's a mammoth review i feel like it's the longest one i've written man i'm trying to think of like other episodes we've done can we just do like a recap of our show sure just like kind of go down cruise down memory lane here yeah did you is there an episode in particular that you had like the most fun recording like one that you remember the most fondly i feel like when we did gone girl with celia that was really fun because i feel like in the past we hadn't really had that many guests anyway but I always feel very nervous around guests, but I didn't even like know Celia, but I just felt very comfortable talking with her right off the bat. And so that was a lot of fun to have that group dynamic. Celia was ready to riff. She really was. She came in wanting she to make a it. comedy podcast instead of a movie podcast, and it showed. That's what I want. <laughs> I want a comedy podcast. I want to subvert genres. <laughs> I think my favorite that I don't, I mean, I've looked at the metrics. I know what episodes people are listening to and which ones they're kind of ignoring. <laughs> And an episode that I wish had more listens because I had so much fun doing it was when we had Hana in to do Belly. Oh, yeah. And I know part of the reason that very few people listen to that episode is because not a lot of people have seen that movie. Yeah. But Hana was such an excellent guest and it was so much fun to talk to her. And uh, she brought so much energy. And I mean, that's what her podcast is like. True. So <laughs> she really brought that to us, which was really great. But. Yeah, that was a fun episode. That was a really fun. Also, episode. that one that one gets pretty uh pretty wet and wild with the swears. We really you got it. That one let loose. That was fun. <laughs> so Psycho, we'll talk about Psycho. All right. Um, this was the second time that I'd seen it. So mm. haha, wow. I was in there. I was in there. 
I'm sure this is like the 70th time or something for you. I feel like I haven't master. seen it too many times. This is maybe only like my fifth, I would say. Hmm. But I feel like I watched it a lot a long time ago. Like I'd watch it recurrently and then it's been a few years. So I feel like it's kind of, it's renewed. I feel Ooh. it felt re-energizing to watch it again. It's had like it's a uh, second coming. Exactly. I feel like Hitchcock's weird because I watch all of his movies so many times that it doesn't, even if I've watched it like 10 times to me, that's like, oh, that's not that many times. Like his movies just, they never feel like that to me. It's like you just got to renew your memory of his movies. Absolutely. It's weird with this movie because I feel like this is so much, I would say this is probably his most famous movie. And yet I feel like it's, it's Hitchcockian as you know, all of his movies are because he directed it. But I think of like, it is kind of an anomaly. It's his only, you know, straightforward horror movie. It, during this period, he hadn't made a black and white movie for a really long time. So that was another change. Very low budget. It's just everything about it is so different. And yet it's kind of what people tend to think of first when they get Hitchcock, which is interesting to me. Most of the time when I think about Hitchcock movies, I usually think of a little bit of something funny because mm-hmm. usually they're quite comedic. Yeah. Even movies like Rear Window, which are quite suspenseful, have a lot of funny moments in them. Watching Psycho again, I realized compared to the other Hitchcock that I've seen, it is pretty different. Mm-hmm. Like if you compare this to something like To Catch a Thief or like The 39 Steps, it's super different, even the way that it looks and sounds. Yeah. Well, it's almost like... For him, it's not like a step backward in terms of like quality, but just like, you know, you, he had for so long had these really big movies with big stars and a large scope and were very these kind of fun, accessible thrillers. And I feel like hit, like Psycho is almost the movie that you would make at the beginning of, of your career that like gets you toward the movies he had been making in the 50s. So it's like this weird backwards thing, which he did intentionally because at the time I think I'd read that he was aware that what he was doing while it was well received, was kind of getting monotonous, so we wanted to kind of switch it up and do something more in the vein of kind of the low-budget horror movies that William Castle was making at the time. So I think it it's definitely one of his most interesting movies because he's working in a very different style than what he usually is doing. I feel like if you're somebody with the resources of an Alfred Hitchcock as a movie maker and you have the ability to say, you know what, I'm going to do something low budget, it would probably feel like an enormous weight off of your shoulders because you could still bring all of that knowledge and skill to something, but it would be a lot, you know, lower stakes. Yeah. This movie, I feel like, was kind of high stakes, though, because he, he, I mean, found the material for it. I feel like during North by Northwest's run, like, it was really fast, transitioning between those two movies. But he, because this movie is based on this book by Robert Block called Psycho. And when he pitched it to Paramount, they didn't really want to make it because they thought it was too grisly. And they'd already, I guess they kind of looked at it for material before and thought, no, this is just too mainstream money system. Like, this is too gross and immoral, whatever. So Hitchcock was so committed to, like, making them do it. Because they didn't want to also give him his usual budget because they thought it would flop. So he took a a lowered budget. Uh, He had to ask his stars to take less money. He only took, I think, like $250,000 for his work, which is way lower than what he had been doing. And I think he only shot it in three months. So he had to do like all these conditions to even make the movie when it was a really big hit. Paramount kind of felt stupid, which is funny. But there was like a lot of pressure because he didn't think he kind of was led to believe it wouldn't be a big success. So so I guess Paramount's uh, non-understanding of what is going to be good and do well in the theater Uh, or what they should be promoting, has carried on into now. It really has. (laughs) Uh, Movies like... um, Annihilation and Mother. Movies like Annihilation and Mother, which are super interesting. And people I see talk about them online still right now, Mm -hmm. months after they've come out, are movies that they didn't promote or uh, try to get people behind. They're just like, ugh. It's too weird. People won't like it. People just Mm want to see the Avengers punching each other. (laughs) As it should be. No, just kidding. (laughs) But I think, yeah, interesting with Paramount is because I feel like those those movies, they just kind of believed in them and hoped for the best. Whereas like Psycho, they were very much like, oh, I guess since Alfred wants to do it, like we'll help him a little (laughs) bit. But I don't think it's going to do well. I guess. (laughs) Yeah. It's crazy to me to think that. And even like I think... I'd read also because he did the television show Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So he like used the crew from that because it was a lot cheaper. Like he really just went like did like the bare minimum in terms of finances to get this movie made, which how precious. I love that. Yeah, it's great. Really working hard for something you believe in. (laughs) A place where they clearly did not skimp on the cash, though, was with that score. 
That's, God, that score is so good. It is so good. Wow. I feel like top top five scores of all time. Is that wow. too dramatic to say? That's I just feel pretty like, dramatic, but, but uh, I if also, you feel that way, that's fine. I feel like I have... I've seen very few movies where the music enhances everything so well. I feel like so many movies, the music might seem gratuitous or manipulative, whereas this, Ooh. it just enhances everything so much. And I know Hitchcock felt the same way. He, I guess, had seen like kind of what the movie looked like when it was completed without the music, and he was like, I don't know if this is good. I might just uh, shorten it, make it into an episode of my show, and then they added in Herman's score, and then he was like, actually, this is great. Like, it totally changed everything, which I think I couldn't imagine it without the music. No. It's so distinctive. As, and, and as far as cultural references go to this movie, the music is the thing that gets brought up the most. Oh, certainly. Like, the shower scene music, that's, like, so incredible. Yeah. Because now it's so, it's so embedded in our minds, but, I mean, it's so innovative. If you really go back to 1960, very unlike anything that was you know being put out but also just i guess horror in general is very uncommon but you know me i love a movie i love a movie with a big score i love you a, really do. i love a, i love a music <laughs> that gets in there and gets in your head and uh really is something that you pay attention to i yeah. i've mentioned a number of times on this podcast i don't like it when i don't think about the music like if the music is just kind of happening in the background or like what you said is manipulative something sad is happening so they play like the high string on the Ugh. violin or something really intense is happening so there's like a low beat of a drum or something but mm-hmm. if the music is really sweeping and interesting like it is in psycho it can really like you said enhance a scene so yeah. i appreciate that when it's so memorable i haven't seen the movie in years but i have always been able to kind of just recollect what it sounds like from memory even just like the main theme that plays over the opening credits is exceptional oh i love those opening credits too it's amazing i kind of feel like i wish they were more i guess because i mean when you watch the credits it's, you're, it's very obvious that you're gonna watch a thriller and i the movie opens in a way that kind of suggests that it could be like a romantic melodrama or something right. so i was like if they didn't do that that would have made i think it a lot more shocking because that kind of before everything starts you're like okay something's gonna happen but everything you know, everything that happens after it uh, doesn't match so it's kind of you know creates this distrust that i wish wasn't there <laughs> really I yeah. kind of like the distrust. I, I like it at the oh, beginning. I don't like it because I think this and like the birds as well, the birds kind of starts almost as a romantic comedy. And I think if both just had kind of relaxed opening credits, then like when it starts to get shocking, then it would be way more shocking because then you wouldn't. Oh, but okay. also if a movie's called Psycho, I think, right. you know, it's probably not going gotcha. to I, I misunderstood. I thought you meant you wanted the you wanted the credits to be shocking, more shocking. Oh, no, I misunderstood. No, no. I like they, they are kind of shocking anyway. Like yeah. when it's a psycho and then it like splits in the middle, like, oh boy. Oh boy. We're yeah. In. Also good foreshadowing didn't realize until the ending. Because, you know, split personality of the killer, split oh. opening credits. I don't know if that was a intentional no, connection. No, that actually, that makes sense. I hope it makes sense. <laughs> Let's do the briefest plot summary. Okay. The movie is about this woman named Marion Crane who's having an affair with this guy, Sam. They want to get married, but Sam is still paying off alimony debts from his divorce, so they can't get married. Uh, Marion, she works as a secretary at this bank. She's tasked with, like, delivering $40,000 in cash for this, like, real estate magnet for, like, a property or whatever. And she decides, well, first of all, when we meet the developer, he's a huge asshole. So you're like, okay, he sucks. And then she's like, I'm going to steal it. And you're like, yes, because he sucks. And you need this. So she decides that she's going to steal the $40,000 so she can pay off her debts and then also be able to afford to get married and whatever. So Marion, she lives in Arizona. She's going to go to California, meet Sam, basically. So she goes on a road trip. Uh, she thinks she's just going to drive all the way there. And then she stops at a place called the Bates Motel because it's like raining. Then she, you know, meets Norman Bates, who owns the motel. They have dinner, kind of creepy, whatever. She goes back to her room. It's weird because he's kind of <laughs> creepy, but also very charming. In exactly. A lot of ways. Yeah. He's charismatic. No, I feel like my immediate thing, I just kind of feel bad for him almost like he just seems like kind of just a lonely mm-hmm. nice guy and you're like oh poor norman so you don't really i don't know even w- even when the movie's over you still kind of feel bad for him like you never oh yeah clearly he's like a very disturbed person i know seriously yeah. so after that dinner's over i guess we can talk about it more later but anyway she goes to her room takes a shower and then is stabbed to death oh no 
and by then a mysterious, by a figure mysterious figure who the audience is led to believe is Norman Bates's mother. Yeah, because before they have dinner, like Marion hears Norman and his mother like having a like a shouting match, which is funny because like they're up the hill inside a house, and yet it sounds like they're one foot away. Nobody else so, around. That's true, and the mother's the mother in quotation marks. Her voice is, you know, very piercing. So I guess, you know, whatever. So then Sam, the boyfriend, and then Marion's sister, Lila, they hire a detective to look for her. The detective goes after her. He gets killed by the mother. Then Sam and Lila go to the base hotel to see what happened. And then you find out the truth. And it's shocking. It is. Was that brief That was enough? a great summary. I, I, like I could that. have gotten briefer, but I feel like I should just go through all of it real quick. I think Speed you round. it. I hope so. Absolutely nailed it. What's the name of the detective from The Big Sleep? Philip Marlowe. Philip Marlowe. What a crossover if he was the detective in this movie. That would have been lit. I wish Humphrey Bogart were still alive. He would have died. That would have been something. Can you imagine like his trajectory just being like he has so many great years as a detective then just gets like stabbed at a case that he's not suspicious about. Yeah, gets stabbed at a case and falls down a big flight of stairs. That just seems terrible. Can you imagine that getting stabbed and then you fall downstairs, you're still alive and then you get stabbed more? God. Bad way to go. That's exhausting. Very bad. I guess you get a long period of rest after that. I suppose so. I suppose so. It's <laughs> a uh, time off. But this movie, yeah, it is very much divided into these three acts, and they're all so strong. I just think the writing is so killer. I forgot who wrote it. I think it's like something Stefano. I don't know, but I feel like... Joseph. Joseph Stefano. Joseph Stefano and Robert Block. Well, based on the novel by Yes. Yes. But I just feel like the writing is so strong. All these characters feel very distinctive. They're all certainly types. You know, Marion's your victim. Norman's your untrustworthy guy who turns out to be the killer. And then Lila's the sister. Whatever. So you have all these types, but they never feel like types necessarily. They really just manage to come alive. And I'm not... I don't even know what the key is because I feel like they're all very subtly developed. You don't necessarily know a lot about them, but they're all just Mm -hmm. very convincing I think, I mean, that probably has to do with the performances as well and the way Hitchcock photographs them and everything, but I just feel like the screenplay is great. By far, Norman Bates is the most interesting character. Oh, he's so interesting. In the movie. And a lot of that has to do with uh, Anthony Perkins and his acting ability because mm-hmm. he is so weirdly enticing, but also like so repulsive at the same time. Yeah. I don't know how they did the dialogue, but it's just, there's something about it that's really realistic yeah. especially when the the private detective comes and his kind of squeezing him and trying to get information out of him yeah and he starts to slip up and there's one bit where he kind of breaks and he stutters mm-hmm. but the stutter is so kind of real and uncomfortable and even his dinner with marion is so it's very creepy because at first it you know feels just like kind of an awkward dinner you're just trying to be nice and then marion says something that kind of sets him off and so he Gets kind of mad for a second. Yeah, she says, she suggests after he says that he's kind of annoyed by his mother Mm -hmm. and her wants and needs. And she suggests putting her into a home. But she says, why don't you put her someplace? Yeah. And then that sets him off. And he's like, oh, why does everybody have to refer to it as someplace? You you suggest to put my mother in like a home? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just goes off. And then he almost like snaps out of it. And even like all these weird things, like you never, I don't know, you never necessarily like mad at him in the ways that you would be a typical horror movie villain. Just throughout the movie, there are these things he does. You're like, Norman, oh my God, like relax. But, um, and also in general, Norman relaxes maybe a little bit too soft. Yeah, throughout the movie, you kind of like alternately are disgusted by him, but also pity him a lot, which is, I mean, when you think about slasher movies and the killers that we usually get, they're all very one dimensional, whereas Norman does not feel like this caricature at all no it's not like a a, a jason Voorhees or something no seriously no dude, i'm pretty like jason Voorhees, michael myers both have like no personality i guess freddy krueger has a personality but that's so cartoonish so it's like <laughs> not really the same but yeah you don't get this complex villain very often no no which is crazy to think i mean this would be so old you think there would be some kinds of things following in the footsteps that would kind of emulate it but not really you just get a lot of the same slashing stuff but not the same well i think we could probably talk about dress to kill because it is oh definitely a parallel totally a parallel well, the palma is just, i feel like his most of his career is just riffing on hitchcock basically well i mean he does it all well but okay you know what we'll talk about this in a minute let's do okay. fun, let's do we'll come back to dress to kill because i think there's a lot to say there oh, but totally. let's let's do some fun facts okay. the final 
Fun Facts. I heard you like earlier say final. I'm like, you're gonna say final thoughts already? It's a little early. <laughs> no, final <But> fun facts. <laughs> final fun facts. Wow. There's some good ones. Triple F. Yeah. On set, Hitchcock always referred to Anthony Perkins as masturbates, which I not a great pun. I don't know if that was intentional. Masturbates, you know what I'm saying? No, I yeah, I got like it. No, I got it. Makes it. sense. I would like to hear it though in Hitchcock's voice because he has that very funny British accent. Okay. This might be skipping ahead a little bit. Speaking yeah. of Hitchcock, <laughs> I didn't catch his cameo. I didn't either. And I guess it happens really early. So maybe that's why. Because it's just like so early. Because he... I in the city a, somewhere, like walking down a street? Maybe. I think it's later in here, but I'll just say it now. I think he said he put it really early on purpose because he wanted the audience to be very focused and into the plot. And he knew that if he like was in the middle of the movie, they would be kind of distracted trying to look for him. So... I don't know. We should look it up or something. I don't know. Hitchcock bought the rights to the novel anonymously from Block for only $9,000, which is pretty cheap even by, I feel like, 1960s standards for, you know, an entire book for a movie. Then after that, he bought as many copies as possible so that he could keep the ending a secret. And, I mean, Psycho the Book had only, I think it came out in 1959, so that was still a pretty recent novel. I think I'd mentioned this earlier, but Paramount gave Hitchcock a really small budget because they didn't think it was going to do well financially. And so they deferred most of the net profits to Hitchcock because they thought the movie was going to fail. So they're like, it doesn't matter if we really make money. And then the movie was, like, really successful. And I think in modern dollars, Hitchcock made, like, $125 million. Oh, like it's my nuts Because he got, like, all of it. So good for him. In the opening scene, Marion is wearing a white bra because Hitchcock wanted to make her seem angelic and trustworthy. And then after she's taken the money and we see her in the hotel, she's wearing a black bra because she's done something wrong and evil. And then similarly, when she steals the money, her purse is white. And then if you notice, after she's stolen the money, the purse is black. Oh, wow. Oh, that touch. Her purse just changes colors? I guess so. Didn't even notice. That's a, fun like little, that's a fun little trick. Seriously. Speaking of little tricks, Ooh. I found his cameo. What is it? I'm it so happens eager. six minutes into the movie. As Janet Leigh returns to the office after her lunchtime, Hitchcock is outside of the window of the office wearing a cowboy hat. <laughs> oh my God, that man. <laughs> yeah, so that's great. That's great. Um, this is the first American film ever to show a toilet flushing on screen. I knew that one. That's yeah, I know it's a very exciting fact. I it's feel scandalous. Like I'd read that Stefano like really wanted it because they wanted to add this realism element, and so they thought if a toilet's flushing, which you never see, it'll add to this, you know, realism that we're trying to do. And so Hitchcock's like, All right, well if you have it, there has to be like a reason why like you need to have the toilets. That's why like she rips up stuff and puts it in the toilet because Stefano just wanted a toilet in the movie, basically. For the shot that like looks up into the water stream of the shower head, Hitchcock had a six foot diameter shower head made up and blocked the central jets so that the water sprayed in a cone past the camera lens without any water spraying directly at it. And that shot's only what, like one second? It's a six foot shower head? Is that what you said? Six foot diameter, apparently. That's That's a big shower head. I, maybe that's right. Maybe IMDb is crazy. Who can say? And that makes sense. You know, when they were shooting the opening credits for Dial M for Murder, they they made like a gigantic telephone. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Classic Hitchcock, just doing the most. Oh, I said this with a cameo. Oh, so the amount of cash Marion stole, which is $40,000, today is the equivalent of like 315000 So that is definitely maybe more wow. than she needed. I think Sam's divorce debts are maybe a little bit less than that, but whew. to ensure people were in the theaters at the start of the movie, rather than walking in partway through, the studio provided a record to play in the foyer of the theaters. I guess like there'd just be an intercom that would say like 10 minutes till psycho time and then five minutes to psycho time, which is funny. But that was like also part of, I'd mentioned William Castle earlier, but that director, he, all of his horror movies that he released, he had these huge gimmicks that he always did. So like one movie, he said like, it's so scary that you might die. I'll give you, like, life insurance or something. And then he had, like, a bunch of coffins in the lobby, like, in case people needed them, I guess. And then one movie, there was, like, a woman's about to walk into a house with a killer. And so he put a big clock on the screen for a fright break. So if anyone needed to leave, then I they love could. That. So I always did that. So Hitchcock, that was kind of his thing. It's like, you can't come in late. You have to wait. And then he also was like, do not tell anyone what you've seen. So it was all very gimmicky, a lot of that promotion. 
So good. Um, according to Janet Lee, the wardrobe worn by Marion was not custom made for her in the ways that costumes often were made for like actresses. They were just purchased off the rack. And that was because Hitchcock wanted women viewers to identify with a character who wore clothes similar to them and also adding to that realism to kind That's of cool. make her actually seem like a secretary. There's a shirt that she's wearing at one point of the movie that I thought was really cool. It's like this button up that was kind of like very uh, like it seemed like really thin material but it buttoned like all the way up her neck oh yeah 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 it was i cool. love it all it was it almost seemed like futuristic mm-hmm. perkins and lee were allowed to improvise their roles one of the most notable things is norman's habit of munching on candy corn was something perkins just thought of so it's creepy i also like didn't even notice it was candy corn i'm like what is he eating like i would just see him like nibbling on something but i never really noticed what the actual thing was. How do you feel about candy corn? I hate candy corn so much. It's like eating Dis- wax. It's disgusting. It's just like eating a ball of sugar. I hate it. Yeah, I don't like it either. That's, me everyone, out. I hope you know that. Don't even try to offer me candy corn. Candy corn. Our My review, three out of ten. Candy corn can choke. It's not even a three. It's a zero. It's a negative four. My review amended uh, one out of ten. <laughs> wow, you're so kind. I feel like it's one of those things though where like I will eat it and I'm like hating it, but I'll just keep eating it. You know what I mean? It's like pretzels or something. Like I'm not really enjoying it, but I'm just like putting it in my mouth <laughs> for who knows why. I don't remember the last time I ate just like a little pretzel. Ugh, they're not good. I don't they, like. I'm like not into it. I love a soft pretzel, but those mm-hmm. little tiny crunchy things. No, no, thank you. Not great. Unless you're dipping it in hummus. I don't know. Wow, off topic. Wow, yeah. Okay. Bringing it back. Um, See, this is how we know that he's a psycho. If he's going to eat candy corn, that's a clear there indicator. There you go. That's what I should have thought Clear of. indicator. Because who just eats it all the time? Psychos. When it's not Halloween. Exactly. Maniacs. <laughs> um, Hitchcock used Hershey's syrup instead of blood because it showed up better on camera. Oh, yeah. I bet it did. I love that. Um, Lee invented a complete backstory for Marion, figuring out what she was like at high school, what her favorite colors were, etc. That's also I a guess great. You got to get into the character. Janet Lee's so great, so underrated. Birthed a wonderful daughter, Jamie Lee Curtis. I just everything is great in the novel. The character of Marion was actually Mary Crane, um, but the name was changed because the studio legal department found out that there were two people named Mary Crane who lived in Phoenix, Arizona, which is where the earlier portion of the movie is. So probably a good idea. Yeah. That'd be a little freaky if you're no like in your hometown and it's like your name. It's like, what if I'm next? Marion Crane is a better name anyway. I think so too. I think they it's did a movie name, name. I think her name was Mary because the novel's based on like the, I don't want to say adventures. That's not a good word. <laughs> based on um kind of what like the serial killer Ed Gein or Gein, I don't know how oh, you say it. Oh, that's the guy who made like lamps out of people's skin, right? He's oh, so scary, like yeah. real life monster. But I think they based it off one of his victims was named Mary. So I think that was kind mm. of like the tie-in. But he inspired, I guess it's another fun fact, but that serial killer, he inspired this movie, Sounds of the, the Lambs. Lambs. And I kind of think Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, because mm-hmm. like their, the whole interior of their house is like comparable to what it sounds like his house looked like i haven't seen texas chainsaw oh it's so good i need to see it it's amazing it's really kind of more suggestive than you would think and it really is um overtly gory as yeah expect i thought it was going to be really kind of silly and kind of a friday the 13th style of kind of this cheap horror but it's like legitimately horrifying and i think that's like why it's good that it's suggestive because it never it's terrifying but it never goes too far necessarily so Worth checking out. That's not on my recommendations, but throw it in there. Hey-o. It's amazing. Not underrated. Oh, yeah. I think I mentioned this earlier that Hitchcock didn't like the first cut, but like after seeing Bernard Herrmann's score added, then he was like, okay, this is lit. But yeah, those are all it. Those are great. Well, thank you. Very good. I'd imagine. I wonder what like the shower scene looks like without the music. I feel like the music is such an enhancer. Probably really awkward. Very awkward, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> it's already a little bit goofy. Those, oh, it's totally those stabs do not quite connect with no. anything. That's the thing is I feel like all the murders are kind of funny because like that, like you don't really see any of the actual stabs. It's very, you don't really see anything. And then Arbogast, he gets like stabbed at the top of the stairs and then like falls he, back in a way that it seems like he's sitting on a chair or something. It's just like so perfectly. Yeah. Um, it's stabilized in a weird way. Very stabilized. But I don't know. Still works. Still very effective. Yeah. 
Honestly, like, I feel like I've seen this movie so many times and I still get so freaked out when the shower opens, when, you know, Norman emerges from the room to stab Arbogast, and then, God, the ending, not like the ending ending, but like when, so there's a part at the end of the movie where Marion's sister goes down to the basement, she thinks that Norman yeah. Bates' mother is down there, and so she sees kind of this woman sitting in the corner of the basement, and she kind of touches her shoulder, and then it turns around, and it's just a corpse, basically, that's still... It's, yeah, it's the corpse of, of Miss Bates. Of Mrs. Bates, yeah. And then, right as you're, like, reeling from that, then, like, Norman appears behind her dressed as, the, uh, as Mrs. Bates. And, like, the expression on his face is so scary. Like, even talking about it kind of freaks me out. But, like, all of it is so... And those scenes, I've seen them so many times, and they right. still are so scary. I think the subtle detail in that scene that gets me, like, you know, a, a corpse in a chair is pretty tame as it's far classic. as horror movies go. But when she spins around and you see her face, it's not just that you see like this skull, you know, you don't just see like this skeletal frame. The light on the ceiling gets bumped yeah. by um, by the sister. So this swinging light is, it's just moving all over the place and casting light in all different directions. And the way that you can tell that the light is moving is because the roundness of the shadows in the eye sockets mm. of the skeleton are moving and it just looks ooh. so <laughs> creepy. I didn't even notice. Oh yeah, that ooh. the lighting in that scene is really impressive because I would imagine that's very hard to capture how it would look if a light bulb is swinging in the way that it does, but it the whole movie is also just shot very well in general. Oh, I know totally. they put I think they put like a 50 millimeter lens over like the general 35 so it looks a lot more realistic than movies of the era. It's a lot clearer. Yeah, Which... I was thinking that. Well, I guess I was also watching it on Blu-ray. I was oh, like, wow. Ooh, it was so fancy. Yes, uh, here's a, here's another plug for your local library. <laughs> your local library. Get local the Blu-ray library. there. Yeah. <laughs> That's my goal this summer. I'm going to start using the library more. Oh, yeah. I got to. You have to. It'll give me something to do to walk to the library and grab things. Totally. You know? Yeah. They have everything. Blu-ray. Wow. Blu-ray. I don't know. Is my disc player capable of Blu-ray? I don't know. Is it on your computer? I got... I use like a... $10 DVD player from... Oh, that probably won't do it. <laughs> it just, like, plugs in. It's very sad. Tragic. But, yeah. That was, like, I think one of Hitchcock's, of, like, intended effects to use the 50-millimeter lens so that he could capture all the realistic elements. And, I mean, when you think of movies from that era, like, nothing is this clear. I feel like one of the things that's always been so appealing about kind of old Hollywood movies is that they there's always a little bit of... I don't know, glossiness. It looks very unreal. There's a veneer. This is so real feeling that it kind of throws you off. Because it's like, I mean, this is as old as all these other movies, but it's so much more crystalline oh, yeah. the way it looks. When Arbogast, when you see him for the first time uh, and he comes through uh, the door into the like hardware shop, the camera is right up on his face. You yeah. can see every single individual pore on yeah. that man. I love it. Super clear. That's why I love Arbogast. And I'm like, I was so sad when he died. I just, He's a fun character. But I like his character because you really do believe that he is just the cynical detective who's seen it all. And he's like, oh, this is just like another missing girl case. So silly. And then it's like, oh, but then it's actually way worse than that. And he doesn't even realize. I like the way that all the characters kind of predict the actions of others. Yeah. Because they go to talk with the, the police chief. And they mention that Arbogast is gone after mm. trying to track down this $40,000. And the police chief is like, well, don't you think he just went after her on his own and isn't contacting you because he could get a big reward for returning $40,000? Yeah. And they kind of go, yeah, maybe, but no. <laughs> hey, wait a second here. <laughs> yeah, they're horror movie characters. They got to kind of be a little suspicious yeah, they most gotta. of the time. I cannot imagine that, though, like being Lila and Sam, and you're like, mm, I think something's up. And then like when you find out what's actually going on, like there's no way you can prepare for that. That's mm -hmm. crazy. Yeah. That's bananas. So <laughs> we'll talk about the very end and oh kind of God, the way yeah. that they wrap up this movie. God, I hate it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big fan of the way the movie ends. It literally, the movie I feel like honestly is perfect until that part. Like I, every, uh, yeah. Do you want to explain it too? So after they, they get jumped by Norman Bates <laughs> at the end in the basement, they're able to, you know, knock him out. They're able to restrain him and the police arrest him. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of cut to the inside of this police department and there's this psychologist who took psych 101, I guess. <laughs> and he's just like, 
let me tell you the story of Norman Bates. And he goes on and on about how there's two personalities in this guy. One of them is him, and the other one is the personality of his mother, which he's dealing with because of all these different issues. It's just so... It's the... It's like they've put all the exposition at the end of the movie. Yeah. And it is totally pointless. And we already knew what the, what that all was without them telling us, you yeah. know? And that's just frustrating. But there's a part where there he's explaining, you know, well, he's got his own personality and the personality of his mother. And then one of the regular police officers just like yells out from the sidelines. <laughs> he's like, he's a transsexual. And there's this kind of beat of awkward pause. And then the psychologist is like, no <laughs> he's not yeah although even then the like his explanation he's like no someone who's a transvestite is someone who gets turned on by wearing others clothing and it's like okay still wrong but <laughs> yeah it's all just none of it feels right and especially i mean it is interesting because they say the reason why there are these two personalities is because like didn't mrs Bates she killed norman's dad and so they kind of had this weird <laughs> what was the quotation no i guess i guess she did yeah Yeah. she did kill his dad she killed his dad so that kind of disturbed him and then they kind of lived alone didn't really see anyone else and so they had this very codependent relationship until until like a man came in norma's i guess that's the mom's name i'm like thinking of bates motel like the tv show (laughs) a man came into her life that kind of created this jealousy and then didn't and then norman Norman poisoned both of them poisoned both of them and so after that to kind of cope with not being able to have this codependent relationship anymore he kind of just developed her personality to make up for it and so the reason why he killed marion was there's this thing he does now where if he's attracted to a woman basically then his mother's side will come out and kill the woman because like his mother if she were alive would not want a woman around basically but it's like you kind of already know that you don't really need this big backstory no the explanation is completely unnecessary i know like i think hitch not Hitchcock, Roger Ebert, I read his review, and he was just saying how they should have honestly just said, like, oh, there are two personalities, the mother and Norman, leave it at that, and then go to the part where you see Norman in his cell, and that probably would have been fine. And that, I love the part with Norman in his cell. Oh, that's so good. That's maybe the one voiceover in a movie that I'm okay with, and even if they hadn't had it, it still would have been a great scene. I'm just sitting there and just kind of looking almost at the camera. Yeah, it kind of makes up for, like, how terrible the scene is before it. Yeah. But I had read someone, I guess this is an interesting point, but they had said like Hitchcock knew that that ending was dumb, but because he was trying to copy exploitation movies, which often because of a lack of budget would just have like this explanatory voice, like a narrator or just like a character who explains everything because that was a recurring thing. He just threw that in there to match the genre Mm. and it wasn't necessarily him being like, oh, this is the only way to do it. He was just like, this is just how all these movies end. I'm working in the same genre as them. So I have to stay true to that. Which still, no, yeah, doesn't, nah. still not a good excuse. I only want an explanation at the end of an episode of Charlie's Angels, not a Hitchcock movie. So <laughs> <laughs> that's just how it is. That's a very good point. But yeah, but it's still, I mean, it's awful, but it's still not enough to like deter how great the movie is. Exactly. That comes before it. Thank so, God. <laughs> here's the thing. It's exactly the same as Dress to Kill, which we've yeah. talked about on the show before. Go yeah. listen to our Dress to Kill episode. That was a fun episode to do. Uh, <laughs> a fun movie. But the story is the same. Right. Michael Caine is this character who has two personalities and he does a murder, does several murders. Yeah. And uh, then at the end, they explain the same thing and they say Mm -hmm. he's a transsexual. Yeah. And they do the same thing. But that one, that one is made like explicitly sexual. Yeah. Which is Um, harmful. (laughs) Harmful. Yeah. They make it explicitly sexual. But then that's kind of, it's weird. It's kind of the opposite of Psycho because at the end of Psycho, they're not just like, oh, this is a sex thing for him. It's just like, <laughs> no, this is a trauma thing for him. Yeah. But they, it's clear that in Dress to Kill, they're trying to shift it and have the message be kind of the opposite because that movie is, you know, so much more graphic. Yeah. Well, both sexually and in terms of like gore, it's graphic. Mm-hmm. So I can see, I guess, the aim of Brian De Palma in that movie. Like, I want to make a movie that's like more lurid and yeah. will be like more, I don't know, you know, a little grimier, a little more exploitation-y. But yeah. I think uh, in terms of like gender politics, not great. Not great. That's the thing with like De Palma is I feel like, I mean, Hitchcock always kind of could be a little bit, I guess, questionable, not in like gender politics, but just like how women were sometimes treated. Like even just his views on women in general, like we all know that he was like awful to Tippi Hedren on the set of The Birds. So he's kind of a misogynist himself. Um 
But like De Palma, what's always been his movies are all very stylistically interesting, but they're so much more overtly like their gender politics are kind of warped a lot of the time. They're a lot more. They feel a lot more misogynistic. I read a comment that he said recently where he was like, I don't remember what it was like verbatim, but he was just kind of saying like people were criticizing the fact that so many women get killed in his movie. And he was like, well, what, what else can you do in a thriller? You just have to kill women in the thriller genre. And it's like, oh boy. But it's like, they're interesting because I feel like De Palma is kind of like, like Hitchcock on steroids, I guess. Like, it's like if every kind of idea Hitchcock had, it, like De Palma made it sleazier, basically. Totally. Which there's is a layer been, of grime. There's a layer of grime, which is always, I think that's always like made his movies interesting, but can always make them problematic as well. But it's yeah. interesting, all of it. <laughs> so after the scene that is not great, there is a great scene in yeah. Psycho. Where Norman Bates is sitting in his cell, mm. still dressed as his mother. He's wrapped in a blanket, I think. And he has this voice in his head, which is his mother talking. And she's saying, you know, they got me, but I'm going to I'm gonna act like I always have. Like I could never hurt a fly, yada, yada, yada. And the camera is slowly creeping in on him. And then there's this cut. But it's a, well, it's a fade. There's a fade. Mm. And you can see the outline of a skull on his face <laughs> as it fades. And it is one of the coolest little subtle yeah. effects, which I feel like if you blinked, you'd miss it. Mm -hmm. But I absolutely adore that. And then it cuts away to uh, the car that Norman Bates put in the bog that was that had her body in it and yeah. the, the money being uh, excavated back out. And then it says, you know, psycho. It says the end, you know. <laughs> And even the expression that Anthony Perkins is making in that it's kind of these looking downward, it's kind of like evil Lauren Bacall or something. And then <laughs> it just zooms in and just, he looks like progressively evil and he pulls it off so well. God, it's such a good, did he get nominated for an Oscar? I feel like this is such a great performance. Maybe. I, but I don't, I know Janelle Lee, she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but I don't know if he did, but this is such a good performance. And I feel bad because I know. Perkins and Lee always talked about, like, after this movie, they were often, they were either typecast or they couldn't find roles that, you know, were as good as this because people were, you know, so used to seeing them in these parts. They, I mean, they both said that, like, because Psycho's such a great movie, they're just so happy to be part of it. They Even if they were typecast or didn't get good parts because of it, it didn't really matter. They were just glad to be in it. But it's still much, it is hard to think of Anthony Perkins in, like, anything besides this movie. He was in a TV production of uh, Les Mis. Really? Mm hmm Wow. When? <laughs> um, I think in the 80s. Oh, okay. I feel like there's been so many productions of Les Mis. I'm like, which one? <laughs> there's just a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was in a lot of movies, this guy. I, I looked him up because afterward I was like, he, I was just enchanted by his performance. I thought he was fantastic. So I, I, was, I wanted to see other things, but I hadn't heard of any of these. He was in Psycho 2. Oh, yeah, there was, like, Psycho 2 and 3. I think there was a fourth. I don't think he was in the fourth, though. Oh, he's in the fourth. I can see it. Oh, is here. he? Yeah, he's and in Is the there a fifth? Because there's one with... Psycho 4, I think the Bud beginning. Court or something. Who's in that? Is that Bud Court? Who? Bud Court. Is he, like, the main actor? In Psycho 4? The one that Perkins is not in. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to dig through all <laughs> Who of this. Who can say? Well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Do you got anything else that you want to talk about? What else? I probably just have some throwaway lines. Oh, I love the whole dynamic of when... First of all, I just love Marion driving to Arizona, how it's just like a bunch of, it's, you're just hearing basically her thought process and how paranoid she is and how overanalytical she is. Because first of all, that develops her as having like a pretty, even though she did something very immoral, like you, it bothers her. So that makes her more sympathetic. Also relatable. I feel like that every time I drive, I'm just sitting there and overanalyzing everything in my life. But I love that touch using that kind of instead of only music. I love when she... It's like taking a nap on the side of the road and a cop wakes her up and then there's that fear that the cop is going to realize what's going on because he follows her from there too. She like goes and buys a different car later on and he's still kind of around and that whole thing really adds to the tension that we feel. But I, I like love it. when the cop shows up and like knocks on her window and the whole oh, conversation that they have and then when she pulls away to the car lot and he follows her and then as she's leaving with her new car there's like the, the the garage worker man, there's the car salesman and the police officer are all standing in this perfect line, just kind yeah. of staring off after Ugh. her. They're almost like zombies or something, you know, yeah. or possessed mm -hmm. creatures. They're like, you know, there's the horror movie trope of the, the insane man that you meet like at the gas station or something before you go to the actual scary cabin in the woods. Yeah. No, 
they were kind of the equivalent of like three people who were doing that, but not saying anything as a warning, just kind of being these creepy foreshadowing-esque characters. Oh, totally. I love that. Well, I like those characters too because they really help you feel what Marion's feeling. You have like, you know, obviously like the voices in her head that you hear, but then you have that. So you really, it makes it a lot easier to get into her headspace and understand how conflicted she is about what she's done. So very smart and very subtle. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was, this is a, I don't even know if this is going to be a discussion, but I was like confused because they, for dinner, they have like sandwiches, but I feel like I literally just saw Lee eating a piece of bread and that was it. Like it wasn't. It was a, it was a bread with a piece of cheese. I, wow. That's a terrible sandwich. It's not a very good sandwich. That's a sad one. Hey, he's a psycho. He makes psycho sandwiches. That's true. Um, I hate how when she first starts showering, she's like smiling. It's very weird. Yeah, I was noticing the show. I was like, she is really into this shower. Like it was like a shampoo commercial or something. It's like Janet, is this shower that good? Are you sure about that? Hey, I mean, the shower head was six feet big. <laughs> That's true. It really, it got the job done. You get a lot of water at least on until you. you get murdered. That's so sad. At least she was happy for a minute. You know? That's true. She enjoyed it while it lasted. <laughs> I thought the casting of her and Vera Miles was really good. They do look like sisters. They really do. Which I guess also, this is another little fun fact. Like right after this movie was done, Vera shaved her head for a role in a different movie. Wow. Which I didn't even know people shaving their heads for roles existed in 1960, but I guess it was a thing. Wow. In a legitimate movie. So good for Vera. Oh, I like that we don't go inside the mansion until... Oh, I guess we do, but we don't really explore the mansion until Vera does. Like, we always get these little glimpses of it, but we don't ever really look at it until she does, which is good because it should be through fresh eyes like that. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. All right. I got all my little points. Do you have any more points? <laughs> that's that's what I've got. Great. Yeah. I guess one more thing. Uh, I'm always surprised when I watch this movie, which is twice, but I'm surprised <laughs> the second time still at how early the main character dies. I, it's such a good touch. It's like touch. 45 minutes in. But you don't see it coming. And even when I saw it again and I know she dies, like I still am like, she won't die this time. Like I don't know right. what it is. You really grow attached to her. And you feel bad for her. Absolutely. It's awful. So sad. But it's a great movie. It's a great movie. Except for that ending. Except for that ending. Which blows. I think that's probably good for final thoughts, right? Like it's a I great movie. So. Except for the ending. Yeah. Very influential to the slasher genre really happened because of this. I mean, the slasher genre, I already have problems with it because I feel like it's very misogynistic a lot of the time. So, like, you know, this movie started a genre that's very questionable, but still, its impact. Wow. Big impact. Cannot be overstated. Absolutely not. <laughs> Shall we do some recommendations? Sure. 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 I went with some good slasher movies. Yes. Classic. Isn't that unpredictable? Who would have saw that uh. coming? I'm so happy. I went with some Italian slasher movies because, as we all know, mm. Italian horror is, like, my favorite thing. It's your favorite. It's so bad, but so good. Yeah, I saw they put um, out a teaser trailer for the new Suspiria oh my, movie. I watched it this morning. I'm I haven't lose seen it yet. my mind. It looks so good. Does it really? I'm so excited. It's Luca. It's Mr. I Guadagnino. I love Luca so much. Listen. He's great. With Call Me By Your Name, he took me to Italy. Yeah. I got to go to Italy. And now I get to go back. Yeah. But here's the thing. This time, it's going to be scary, Italy. That's true. you got to watch all those other movies to prepare. I do. A bigger splash is lit. So is I Am Love. He just kills it every time. Okay. So talented. Very excited. So a reason I picked, I guess going back to my recommendations, the reason I picked Italian horror movies is because I feel like slasher movies in America didn't really pick up for a while. Like this movie happened and then they kind of became popular more in the 70s, whereas like Italian horror very much like right off the bat was like, yeah, slasher movie's great. So one early example is Mario Bava's Blood and Black Lace. I feel like I recommended this before. Ugh, I don't know. They all have such good titles. Such too. a good title. They Blood in Black Lace. Blood and Black Lace. Blood and Black Lace. Yeah. Oh, it's great. But this one, it's from 1964. And I really, I wrote a review of it a long time ago. I really underrated it back then. I think I gave it like a C plus, which is not accurate. I should just rewrite it. But it's a very amazing slasher who done it sort of thing and is beautifully photographed it's like a technicolored slasher movie a lot of neon very just sumptuous everything the way it looks it takes place in like the fashion industry and so like all these models in this like um fashion house are getting picked off basically has a similar kind of twist ending but it's very well shot and baba's also so underrated like i think he's one of the best horror directors that there is but he does not get his credit which kills me Hopefully this will give him some credit. Who knows? 
Um, and then I picked same director as Suspiria, Dario Argento. Get ready for this title. I'm ready. I'm so ready. This one's called The Four Flies on Grey Velvet. That is the best thing. Four Flies? On Grey Velvet. I'm not really sure what any of that means. But another very well photographed slasher movie. Very inspired stock and slash scenes. Per usual, Argento just, he kills it. The pre-Suspiria stuff is very interesting. I think before that, he had done more just straightforward slasher movies. That's a good one. I also recommend Deep Red. That's another great, just kind of a slasher movie. Um, But yeah, you can see Hitchcock the way, because Argento was often called Italy's Hitchcock, basically. Um, So you can see where he influenced other countries. It's not just America that, you know was really impacted by Psycho. There you go. But I love. Are I those, really do. do you have any more? Was that it? Those are my two. Exciting. I guess just throw in Deep Red and I, I, yeah. the earlier uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Nice. We'll say those count too. Nice. Great. Uh, well, I'm happy you went with Slashers because I'm going with other Hitchcock to watch mm. for n- different vibes from, from this. And <laughs> I want to recommend maybe ones that are lighter hearted. So if you if you are yeah. scared by Psycho and you need something to kind of mm, cheer yourself up <laughs> afterwards, uh, I would highly recommend you watch The 39 Steps, mm, which fun. is a fun kind of mystery, uh, espionage almost, secret agent story with some, what do you call it, like international intrigue. <laughs> Two people on the lam running from the law uh, for reasons that kind of become divulged as the movie goes on. It's in black and white. It's from... 1939, I think. I think 35. 35. Or 34. I could be wrong. It's from a while we'll find ago. Out. It's great. <laughs> it's, it's great. Also, very, very funny. Mm-hmm. And if you are familiar with the trope of people who are not very happy with each other being handcuffed together for most of the film, <laughs> this is where it comes from. So zany. Very so zany. quirky. It's classic. It's a classic <laughs> trope. You see it in every TV show now. I think I just watched I just watched the James Bond movie, Tomorrow Never Dies, and like Pierce Brosnan and Michelle Yeoh, they're like handcuffed through a whole action scene. It's crazy. That's awesome. That's like the that trip on steroids. Well, uh, Han Solo and Chewbacca were handcuffed together That's in, true. The, in the new, uh, well, I guess like leg cuffed together. All these great pairs. Oh, leg cuffed is so much worse. Yeah. Especially when you're, when you're cuffed with a big uh, walking carpet. <laughs> That's dangerous. True. God, can you imagine that being handcuffed to your or leg cuffed to your carpet? That just seems like a lot of work. Well, Chewbacca's his friend. Carpet. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my other recommendation for something a little different that's also early Hitchcock is uh, The Lady Vanishes. Mm. Have you seen that one? I have not seen that, that one. That one is really fun. Ooh, um, gotta watch it. It's very fun. That one is also quite funny. It features a secret agent who you don't expect and a head injury and some... Tricks and traps, lots of uh, switcheroos in that Ooh. one. Some action, also a total comedy. This sounds lit. Yeah, you have to I see. I gotta dig in. I would honestly recommend The Lady Vanishes and The 39 Steps as like a double feature night. Because they're quite it. similar. They're both mm. black and white. It's great. They're really fun. I need to dive more into like pre-America Hitchcock. He really, he did the most during his time in Britain. Dude made a lot of movies. He did. And the fact that he made so... I feel like even his like subpar movies are still great. You know, I really want to see some Hitchcock Presents, the show. I've never I watched it. I need to it. watch them too. My I, friend Seth, I was talking to last night, was telling me about it because he used to watch it all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think he said that he's seen like every, almost every Hitchcock movie. Which wow. Which is really really something yeah because there's a lot mm-hmm. but he was telling me about an episode of hitchcock presents where there's some friends who all go to a beach party and there's like this foreshadowing about one of them will get violent when he drinks so what they do is they they get him drunk but then they give their other friend this kind of like serum that makes him appear dead or like they sedate him i think they give him tranquilizers uh-huh. so it looks like he's died and they put like fake blood on him and the other guy has fallen asleep drunk and then when he wakes up he thinks and they like put a hammer in his hand and he wakes up and he thinks he's killed his friend but the other <laughs> friends who did that prank like they go away into another cabin that's on the beach or something and then when the drunk dude wakes up he thinks that he killed his friend so he takes that guy but you don't see this happen he takes him and he buries him in the sand on the beach oh. And then he comes back and the friends are like, oh, we got you. How you doing? And he's like, oh, wh- where's our where's our bud? And he's like, uh, 
And then at that point, the tide has come in. Oh, no. Yeah. Also, that's a terrible prank. Horrible like, what prank. what asshole friends? These are, like, worse than, like, the Devil Wears Prada friends. Worst friends ever. Jesus. It's like some frat bro next level stuff. Oh, my God. Who would do? They're all going to hell. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that was me imitating God Warrior from Wife Swap. <laughs> There you have go. you seen God Warrior? I have not seen She's God Warrior. She's quite a woman. I'll send you a gift later. Okay, thank you. You might I recognize because I've probably sent you something. Love me a good gif. <laughs> okay, well, I think that brings us to the end, Wow. Huh? The end, TM. Ugh. The real end. Ugh. That's it. Kills me. Me too. I'm dead. We'll have to figure something out. We'll have to figure something out. Yeah. That's the key. Well, before we wrap up, uh, we've got some thanks that we want to say for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure. <laughs> thanks are important. Uh, do you want to go first or should I start with the thanks? I can go first, you go I ahead. guess. Um, want to thank uh, my parents, obviously. I feel like I'm giving an Oscar speech. I'd like um, to thank the Academy. I'd like to thank the Academy, first of all. Um, Sharon Isaacs. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Uh, yeah, my parents for always listening. My dad always has listened and, you know, given me feedback, which has always been very nice. So I've liked that support. Um, my friends who have listened to have, you know, made fun of the way I've talked, but also said that we do good episodes. Always appreciate that. Um, thanks to all the guests for coming on. Thanks to... Oh, my um, gosh. Yes. We got Grace, Molly, Alex, Celia. Hannah. Hannah. Madeline. Else? Madeline. I'm trying to think who else. Wow. Allie was on, right, that special Ratatouille episode? Yes. So yes. she's part of that. Who else? Well, if we left you out, I'm so sorry. It's not anything personal. Our minds are just... Oh, Rebecca. Yeah, Rebecca. Well. Absolutely, Rebecca. Who Rocky else? Horror. Rocky Horror. How could we classic that? time. Anyone else that I missed? Oh, uh, boy. I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> well, let if, us we know did, if we did, you can just write me and yell at me, and I'll say I'm sorry. Perfect. <laughs> Yeah, but thank you all for coming on and taking the time to be on our show. All the, I feel like I'm, like, talking to them, but they're not here. It's Me very too. unusual. Um, but, yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on. It was fun to have guests every once in a while. But also just thanks to you, Aiden, for just you oh. kind of pitched this, you know, idea I pitched to this, me this I summer. I pitched this idea to you before I really knew you. So. <laughs> yeah. No, I appreciate you pitching it because, you know, first I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it. I was, like, very nervous about being on a podcast, but... This has been very fun. It's helped me like be actually comfortable speaking in a podcast scenario. So Into thanks for that. Yeah. And thanks for always. I feel, I mean, I edited like two or three episodes, not very many compared to you. You did like all of it. The episodes, putting in the music, getting the guests, all of it. So thank well, you for everything. Thank you very much. It's been a great time. It has. It's truly been fun. I'm going to miss this podcast a lot. Yeah. I'm also going to hit that thanks button real quick. Um, big thanks to my parents who also have been listening to every episode and I get little text messages from them about ones that they're listening to. I really appreciate that. Again, yeah, friends who have listened and say that they're enjoying the show. That's always fun. Uh, I want to thank uh, my lovely girlfriend, Maya, who has been really supportive uh, of this whole project because it's kind of like a non-standard thing to do in college to make a mm. podcast. <laughs> um, but it's it's been, I'm, I'm happy to have that support. Huge thanks to my friend Mango, who has watched almost all of these movies with me. Wow. So legend. it's been really great to have a movie partner uh, to kind of pre-discuss some of this stuff with so I can come onto the podcast with, uh, you know, kind of knowing what I'm going to say and have an <laughs> idea of what I'm talking about instead of just rambling nonsensically. Big thanks to Laura O'Bannon, who made our album artwork, mm. a close friend from high school who I needed album artwork within a week, and she goes to school in Rhode Island, and I just said, hey, can you help me out? And she did it, and the album artwork looks great. So big thanks to Laura. And then lastly, I want to give the biggest thanks I think possible to Alex Bruel, who made our theme song, but not only for that, for kind of teaching me how to do all of the podcast things. Uh, he was the podcast editor before me, and... He was super supportive and he let me come in and sit in the room and watch him do stuff before he and I were even buds. And then also for him coming in and doing the episodes with us. Yes. That was very fun. Predestination. Love that episode. Mm -hmm. Some very good talk about time travel. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's just about it. I think that's about it. Yeah. Love. Love. Wow. Oh, and uh, thanks to the UW library system for checking out <laughs> so many movies to watch. They really helped you out. <laughs> they really hooked me up. I, I really should have taken advantage. I think in total... For, like, money spent doing this show, I probably spent, like, $40, including, like, movie tickets, you know? Yeah. I think I only had to rent two movies. I, w I rented Dreams and I rented Scream 2. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I'm going to do our regular wrap-up. It's right here. Ready. 
If you want to hear more of us talking about movies, you can dig into our backlog. Um, where that's located is Apple Podcasts, Google Play, uh, wherever you get podcasts on our website, uwpodcast.com, where there are more shows which are ongoing, such as Home Plates, which just wrapped up its season, but is going to resume in the fall in a slightly different format, I've heard. So, really? you know, get excited for more of uh, Dee Dee doing her thing. Dang. There's shows like Pillow Talk and the Box Seat Podcast if you're into sports and a bunch of other ones like Between the Culture. Uh, Allie was just on with me on the Ratatouille episode and her podcast is really great. And that's going to continue in some kind of form next year as well. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find us on Twitter at the Filmcast. You can also find us on our personal accounts at Aiden Walkero or at Blake W. Peterson. If you like the show, share it with a friend, give it a review on iTunes, uh, shoot it out on the Twitter sphere. If you want to write to us just to say whatever it is that you want to say to us, <laughs> be it a fight or a or a like, it can be uh, written to us at cinemadventurepodcast at gmail.com. I would say if you want to follow along with us, oh yeah, you know what? If you want to follow along with us, stay tuned because Blake is about to put out his own podcast that's true. about rock and roll history Yeah, uh, called The Definitives. I'm very so excited. So that's going to come out really soon, right? In a couple weeks? Yeah, very soon. A couple weeks. Yes. Yeah, so uh, we'll tweet about that once that goes up from yes. the movie account and we'll kind of start promoting it. But definitely listen to that. I Please, have the I distinct you. pleasure of being an editor and getting to listen to it. And I can assure you that it's great. And you get to hear Blake do a, a, <laughs> like a fake, a fake voice. radio voice. Yeah. Uh, I sound yeah. terrible. <laughs> oh, he sounds great. He sounds so professional. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.